Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakya. Welcome to uh, today's episode. I'm excited to say we've reached our 20th episode of Back Talk Doc. And when I started this project, maybe under a year ago, my goals were to educate the general public on all the ins and outs of spine care and really arm you, the listener, with accurate, up-to-date information about the medical options for the treatment of your spine condition so that you can make an informed decision. And I, I think the, the feedback and the results have just been fantastic. Surprising to me, our audience at Backtalk Doc is not just patients. I've had people in the healthcare community reach out to me, and I, I think the topics and the information we've covered have really been helpful for people, not just in the Charlotte area where our practice is, but also across the country. I've looked at the uh, listener profiles, and it really makes me feel good to know that those of you out there are sharing the episodes and we're touching a wider audience. So I want to start out this episode by thanking you for taking the time to listen to the information we're providing. And if you found the podcast to be helpful, please go on iTunes and leave us a good review. And even more importantly than that, if you know of a friend or family member who's suffering from pain or injury and could potentially benefit from the information, feel free to share the episode with them. And with that said, I want to dive into today's topic. Really anxious to get going here. I have an interview today with Dr. Chris Holland. Chris is a neurosurgeon here at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates. And Chris, you've been with the group about five years, six years now, right? Just about five years, so just over yeah. four years or so that I've been here. Well, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we're going to cover a topic today that is really modern. It's the idea of robotics in surgery or uh, surgical robotics. And when I think about this topic, my mind goes out like into the future. I feel like I'm at Epcot and I'm looking at the you know Tomorrowland and the Jetsons and just really kind of crazy stuff. So I want to break this down into something that's meaningful for listeners so they can understand what it really means. Before I do that, folks, I want to introduce you to Chris. Chris did medical school where he did a MD-PhD program at Boston University School of Medicine. He did a residency and internship at Emory University and a fellowship in complex and minimally invasive spine surgery at the University of Utah. So he's fellowship trained and he's published over 22 peer-reviewed manuscripts and has presented at both national and international medical conferences. He was awarded an NIH NINDS Predoctoral Fellowship in the Congress of Neurological Surgeons David Cahill Spine Fellowship Award and was named a 2016 Top 40 Under 40 Healthcare Innovator. His specialty interests include degenerative spine conditions, spinal instability, spinal deformity, spinal primary metastatic tumors, artificial disc replacement, and spinal trauma. So he, he does it all and he does it well. It's been a real pleasure getting to work with him in our practice. And I think he's a perfect guy. Chris is always on the cutting edge of treatments for our patient population and community. So Chris, thanks for taking the time to join us today. 
Well, thank you so much, Sanjeev. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be on your 20th episode. And, and I think this is a very exciting topic just because there's been so much innovation in the last several years and things are really starting to move quickly. And it, it's providing a lot of benefit to our patients in terms of the things that we're able to do, leveraging these new technologies in new and innovative ways to improve care. Before we dive into the topic today, I always like to give the listeners a little sense of who they're listening to. Can you give us a synopsis of kind of how you found your path into the field of neurosurgery and just a little bit about your background? I know you have a little bit of an entrepreneurial background as well. Just a, You have a very unique and interesting background I want you to share with the listeners if you can. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. It, it is sort of a little bit of an atypical background. I, I started working in medicine and in, in hospitals very young. I, I was introduced to medicine early in my life. Both of my parents were ill when I was young and, and spent a lot of time around hospitals and doctors. And so I started shadowing physicians and actually working in an emergency room when I was 17 years old. And I carried that all the way through college. And so I had very early good experiences with physicians, in particular with surgeons who would take me from the emergency room into the OR for patient cases to observe. And that's really where I got my initial exposure to surgery in, in general. After college, I knew, you know, I was sort of already directed on this path. I knew that I wanted to go to medical school and pursue a career in medicine. But I took two years after college and I worked at a lady clinic outside of Boston. And there I was working primarily in the clinical research department, but again, had an you know, active interest in surgery and worked with a number of different surgical departments there. And that afforded me the opportunity to shadow physicians, spend time in the operating room with them. And I spent a lot of time with the neurosurgeons there, got to know them very well and really got excited about the types of cases, you know, surgical cases they performed, the types of patients they took care of and, uh, and the impact they had on patients' lives. And so I left that job, headed to Boston University for the uh, MD-PhD program. And at that point, I really was convinced that neurosurgery was what I wanted to do. During my two-year period at Lady Clinic, spent a fair amount of time taking graduate coursework in computer science. I had a computer background. I'd always been interested in computers and technology. And that sort of laid the foundation for my PhD, where I looked at MRI imaging of the brain and applied different mathematics or statistical measures to those images. And so I did uh, the combined degree program where I completed my PhD in the Center for Neurologic Imaging at Brigham Women's Hospital. And ultimately, when I graduated from there, as you mentioned, I went to Emory in Atlanta for my neurosurgical residency. While I was a resident there, I continued with my interest in technology and in software development and built a number of systems there that we used within the department to augment or improve our ability to manage our patients and our patient lists. And so some of those things involved building systems for tracking our cases or our quality improvement conferences. But I also helped to build a mini imaging system to collect all of the outside imagings that we were constantly being sent with patients as they were transferred in from other facilities. As you know, most patients get their images on a CD and that disc not only can be damaged, but they all have somewhat proprietary software on them and can't always be read by every computer, which is very challenging in neurosurgery when patients arrive in the middle of the night. And it's critical that we can review their imaging to decide whether or not that patient needs emergent or urgent intervention. And so I helped to develop a system to allow us to do that as well as to archive and store those images in our department there. So I've found ways to take my interests in, um, in technology, in computer science, and in development and, and apply those to real problems within healthcare. And so 
being able to do that makes a big difference to me in that I'm seeing problems and working to actively address them, not just for the immediate need, but you know, for the future in terms of what we can do down the road to continue to improve that experience. I think it's safe to say that technology is somewhat in your DNA and I think it makes you the, the perfect person to dive into this topic today, which is robotics and surgery. You know, I, I somewhat described it in jest, but it is the future is now. And interestingly enough, in preparing for this interview with you, I pulled an article, a review article from the Journal of Robotic Surgery entitled Neurosurgical Robotics, a Review of Brain and Spine Applications. And this was the authors were Karas, K-A-R-A-S, and Chicoa, C-H-I-O-C-C-A. And the reason I'm mentioning is I went through this and then when I was done reviewing it, I realized this was written in 2007. <laughs> so it's been around a while. And you know, here we are in 2020, and it still seems quite new. So I, I just want to start out because I'm sure, like, like me, many of my listeners really don't have a general sense for what this means. So can you kind of explain what is a surgical robot and you know, even describe it so someone listening out there can even have almost a picture in their mind about what we're talking about? Absolutely. And surgical robots aren't the types of robots that we see in the movies, you know, that have a human or a humanoid type form to them. Most surgical robots consist of an arm or a multi-articulating arm with the various types of end effectors or what you would consider similar to a hand on the end or some type of an instrument that would perform a function. The robot itself is somewhat of an incorrect you know, description of what these devices are because Robots, by definition, are supposed to be autonomous, meaning a robot is supposed to be able to carry out very complex or repetitive actions all by itself without any interaction. And so this is a robot in that sense would be something you would see on an assembly line, say at a, uh, an automobile manufacturer, where it's continuing to do the same task over and over again. And it may be a very complex task, but it's programmed to do that all by itself. In the operating room, we don't have robots like that, meaning robots are, are designed to be assistive devices in the operating room, but the human there, the surgeon, is still the one that's carrying out the specific tasks. There are several different types of robots, and, and in neurosurgery, it's used a little bit differently than some of the earlier robots, one of the most popular being the da Vinci. Those early robots, the surgeon stands away from the table or away from the patient and uses a display screen and a, a number of controls to manipulate the arms of the robot to carry out the various functions. In spine surgery, it's a little bit different. In, in spine surgery, we're using a robot that is in close proximity, a robotic arm that's in close proximity to the patient, but the surgeon is still carrying out the actions using that robot as an adjunct or as a, an assistant. And so there are a number of different things that can be different between different types of robots and how they're used ultimately in the operating room. Is it controlled almost like with a joystick or how does a surgeon interact with the robot and obtain robotic assistance? Sure. So in neurosurgery and in spine surgery in particular, but uh, there are also a number of, of cranial or brain surgical applications for robots. We're not controlling the robot with a joystick, but rather we are oftentimes setting up a plan with the robot in advance, sometimes often even before the patient's brought into the operating room. And then we're using that robot to execute that plan. And to make that a little more clear, most of what we're using a robot for currently 
in spinal surgery is the placement of hardware, the placement of instrumentation. And so robotics at this point is being used to place typically screws within the vertebral bodies, what are most often pedicle screws. And in some of the newer developments uh, to be able to place uh, spacers or what we call interbody cages in between vertebral bodies once a, once a disc has been removed there. And so the robotic function is really used in a very narrow window in terms of what, uh, what we're accomplishing with that robot. So the robot is not being used to make an incision or in general at this stage to be removing bone or performing a decompression or a discectomy or anything like that. The robot is really being used as a, as a guide for the uh, highly reproducible and accurate placement of hardware. Okay, so that answers one of the questions I was going to have is, you know, how does a robot assist with spine surgery? So what you're saying is that there's certain specific parts of the surgical procedure where you find benefit in using the robotic assistance, but it's not like the entire procedures, let's say for a lumbar fusion, is carried out with robotic assistance. That's exactly correct. The way that it generally works, and robotics has grew out of earlier technology, which was navigation. And spinal navigation worked analogously to how GPS works in your car, in that we would have instruments and we could look on the screen and the system would show us where those instruments are in the body. And so through a very small hole in the skin, we could use one of these instruments, pass it through the incision, And on the display, we'd be able to see exactly where the tip of that instrument was on the patient's actual anatomy. And so once we were able to do that reproducibly, we were able to align their their imaging with what we were seeing in in the actual operating room. Robotics was, was then developed as sort of the next step. And the way that the robotics or the robotic systems work these days is that we would take imaging of the patient, whether it's preoperative or intraoperative at the time of surgery, and we would, on those images, decide where we want the hardware to be placed. And so we would very specifically plan where we would want to put each screw, for example. And then once we've done that planning, what we would have the robot do is move to a unique position for each one of those screws that gives us the perfect trajectory or the perfect line down through the skin and into the bone exactly where we want that screw to be placed. And so The advantage of robotics in that sense is that we can plan all of the hardware in advance. We can align each screw with the the screws adjacent to it, both above and below it, to facilitate connecting those together with the rod ultimately at the end of the case. And it allows us to, without having significant amounts of radiation, place that hardware reliably exactly where we want that to be placed. Okay, so that's an interesting point there. So you're touching on benefits both from a surgical outcome basis, but also from a provider basis in terms of reducing your risk of exposure during the procedure. Absolutely. We're, we're actually reducing the radiation exposure, not just to the physician and the staff, but also to the patient. And so that's one of the major advantages of, of technology like robotics. I think some of the, the biggest things that, you know, that drive us towards using technology like this is that number one, you know, using this technology decreases the risk of hardware misplacement, you know, meaning a, a screw or an implant goes where you don't want it to be. The second is that it greatly increases reproducibility. So if you have a plan and that robot is consistently executing that plan, you can reproducibly place that hardware in the exact same position every time. 
in addition to reducing radiation exposure, you can decrease OR time, you can increase your efficiency. So once you've verified that your, your registration is accurate and that the robot is accurately moving to the correct position for each, each uh, screw, for example, that you're going to place, you can move very quickly because you don't have to be constantly verifying at each step that you're still in the right place. And so it really increases your operative efficiency and decreases the amount of time the patient needs to be under general anesthesia. And so as a result of all of those factors, you're really improving patient safety and and ultimately improving patient outcomes. All right, that's great. You touched on a lot of the advantages of using robotics and surgery. And I want to get into a little bit about if you see any disadvantages with using robotics. And we'll dive into that right after this break. It's been a while since I've taken a break for a Health Matters segment. I feel like some of our episodes have really been geared towards health and wellness. And then others, we've just had terrific interviews going on, so I didn't really want to break up the flow. But today I want to touch base on the topic of magnesium. It's one that I've encountered in the office for several cases here lately, and I think it's something that we should talk about. Magnesium is obviously a mineral in our body. The adult human body actually contains about 20 grams of magnesium most of which is bound up in the bone, the rest of it's intracellular within your cells. And it's, it's a cofactor for almost 300 different enzymes and chemical reactions in the body. So magnesium is a critical mineral for energy production, for muscle relaxation, for normalizing your heart rhythms. So it's just, it's a very powerful nutrient. And in today's society, there's been some data that suggests almost 50% of the population is deficient in magnesium. And why is that? Some of it could be due to the soil no longer having as much nutrition as it used to be due to farming practices. In other cases, uh, many of us just aren't eating optimally. So diets that are high in refined sugars and breads and pastas and so forth really are devoid of good nutrition and magnesium is one of the elements that is missing. If you want to increase your magnesium, there are some good food sources, nuts, whole grains, legumes, leafy green vegetables, fish, meat, and some dairy products are high in magnesium. Unfortunately, more than 80% of the magnesium is lost in the refining process of whole wheat flour to white flour and brown rice to white rice. And then also you lose a lot of magnesium from your vegetables when you're boiling them. So you want to keep those considerations in mind. The recommended dietary allowances for magnesium, they're really quite low in my opinion. An adult, let's say age 19 to 30, recommends about 400 milligrams a day for males and 300 for females. I just think that with the stress we're under and the the nutrition issues that are in this country, that a little bit more magnesium is probably warranted. Why is it warranted or where does it really come into play in terms of This podcast, which is geared towards spine care, well, it's quite simple. I think there's a correlation between magnesium levels in your body and pain. So I treat a lot of back pain, and I also have people that come to see me who have other types of pain like migraines and and headaches. So if you look at some of the data, it's really compelling. You know, experimental uh, magnesium deficiency has been proven to cause spasm in the blood vessels and the arteries, and that I think is a good correlation with migraine disorder. So Many times, people with migraines will benefit from supplemental magnesium. And this has played out some in the research and the trials that are in the published literature. 
And dosing is around 300 to 600 milligrams per day for adults. That can easily be obtained over the counter in a supplement form. There's also some evidence that the use of magnesium can help asthmatics that can relax the bronchial smooth muscles or the linings in the lungs. And it also has a bit of an anti-inflammatory effect and can blunt your response to histamine. Histamine is what triggers some of the allergic reactions in our body. So it's something to really consider. It has broad positive effects, the least of which also is in supporting bone formation and bone growth. So in osteoporosis, your magnesium is a cofactor for alkaline phosphatase, which is an enzyme involved in bone mineralization. So something to keep in mind if you're taking calcium, you're taking vitamin D, vitamin K, also consider magnesium in your efforts to support your bone density overall. So again, this is just a brief overview of magnesium. You should always check with your physician before you take any new supplements or products, even if they're over the counter. But it's something to consider adding into your your nutritional food plan. There's some debate about what type of magnesium to get. If you look over the counter, there's multiple preparations, magnesium oxide, magnesium aspartate, citrate, there's lactate, magnesium glycinate, magnesium threonate. So there's a lot of different chelated forms of magnesium. Now, magnesium oxide is probably the most widely used preparation. It's very inexpensive. It has a higher proportion of elemental magnesium. It may not be quite as absorbable as magnesium citrate. And I do think the one thing to consider when you're taking magnesium, the main side effect, if there are any, is that if you take a little bit too much, it can cause loose stool or diarrhea. So some of these other chelated forms like magnesium citrate or magnesium glycinate may not cause as much loose stool as magnesium oxide. Therefore, you may want to use magnesium oxide if you're struggling a little bit with constipation or sluggishness with your bowels. If you're using the magnesium for migraine prevention or for muscle relaxation, then I may suggest one of the other chelated forms. So again, that's something to really consider. If you're struggling with low back pain, take a look at your nutrition, take a look at your diet. If you think you might be a little deficient in magnesium, check with your physician and see if it's okay for you to go ahead and add a little bit into your food plan. I think you'll find it to be a pleasant surprise with very little downside. Welcome back. Now we're continuing our interview with Dr. Chris Holland. And today's topic is robotics and neurosurgery, and specifically in the field of spine care. Chris, do you see any disadvantages or are there any challenges from a surgical basis with using robotics? Like, is it a steep learning curve? I wonder, how does it compare in terms of sensitivity and accuracy to the human hand? And just that general feel and touch sensation that I don't ever experience as a physiatrist, except when I'm doing injections. I know there's an art to neurosurgery as well that you've developed and the skills you've cultivated. So what are your thoughts on that? I think certainly there are disadvantages to robotics uh, and robotic systems. One uh, is certainly the cost. They're novel. Uh, there's a lot of technology that's been worked into these, these devices, and so they're quite expensive. Another significant you know, disadvantage is that it does take a, a, not only time to set this system up, but the planning and all of the other steps that you wouldn't typically have to do before a case now need to be done before you can bring the robot into the field and start working. And so sometimes that can be done the night before or even the day or a few days before, but oftentimes it's done the day of surgery and in the operating room. So while there can be efficiency later on in the operation, there's a lot more work that goes into the early part of the operation to get the system registered to the patient's anatomy, 
uh, get the hardware planned on, on the workstation before you st- even start the operation. And so there are certainly time constraints there. There is a learning curve with robotics, just like any new technology. And you, you really continue to rely on your, your tactile feedback. Unlike, you know, the Da Vinci or other robots where you're, you're not uh, still using your hands on the patient. In spine surgery, the surgeon is still doing actually the work of placing that in hardware. And so we still get a lot of the tactile feedback, or haptic feedback that we are used to. We still can feel the, the engagement of the bone. We can feel the uh, contact between the, the hardware and the bone to know that it has good purchase, that it's you know, solidly in place. All of those things we're still feeling. So we're really using the, the robot as a channel to work through. And so the robot kind of keeps us contained within a specific space, but the surgeon is still working through that tube or that channel with the drill, for example, or the screw, and is still getting that, that tactile feedback. Are there certifications that you have to go through? So for example, if a patient's out there and, and wants to find a neurosurgeon who has training in the use of robotics, how can they determine if someone's competent and has gone through the proper training? There are several robotic systems out there, and the companies that produce these systems do offer varying levels of training. So there's an initial, an initial training process for using the robot. And then there's obviously more advanced training and more advanced techniques as these, you know, these robots continue to evolve. Uh, they're constantly upgrading the software and also upgrading that, what I refer to as sort of the end effector or the hand at the end of the arm to uh, accommodate different instruments or different, different surgical devices. And so it's an ongoing process. There's no universal certification process at this point for robotics. And each robotic platform tends to have its own training, but that's really industry-driven, meaning if you're interested in purchasing a robot or if you purchase a robot as a surgeon or as a practice, the company then would, would work with the surgeons there to make sure that everybody received adequate training. But it's not something that there's, a, there's an established program or an established level of competency at this stage. Robots are still somewhat rare. They're, they're gaining traction in the market but they're not ubiquitous, meaning you will not find a robot at most hospitals. Even some of the early doctors of navigation have been slow to move to robotics. But what they found is that some folks are actually leapfrogging or moving past navigation and moving directly into robotics without, without a background in using navigation, which was an earlier technology. There's still a lot of utility in both technologies. The newest robotics programs actually are working to merge navigation and robotics together and are becoming hybrid platforms, which is where really where the most value is. Now, you mentioned earlier the Da Vinci system. I know if, if you're out there trying to research this and Google it, you're going to come across that. Can you explain to listeners what the Da Vinci system is? So the Da Vinci robot is used in a number of surgical specialties. It's not currently or widely used in, in neurosurgery or spine surgery. But the way that the Da Vinci robot works is that it's a, it's a machine with a number of arms and a workstation. Uh, and the workstation is in the OR, but over on the side of the room. And the way that it works, it's used typically for procedures done through small incisions uh, within the abdomen or, or pelvis. The robotic arms are placed through these various incisions. And the surgeon then sits across the room away from the patient in what almost looks like a pod with a 
display screen and a number of uh, controls, you know, this would be more of what you'd imagine with joysticks and, and knobs and different devices to control those arms. And those arms can, can accomplish very complex maneuvers such as suturing, tying knots, all of those, those types of things that are common in, in surgery. And there is some feedback from the controls that give you some of that force or haptic feedback from the patient. And so the Da Vinci is a, is a robot that's closer to what you imagine in science fiction, where the, the robot is actually carrying out these tasks and performing various portions of the operation, and the surgeon is controlling that from a distance. Now, that pod or that control panel uh, that the surgeon is utilizing for the operation is in the room. Technically, or theoretically, it wouldn't have to be. And, and it, because that robot is being controlled, it could technically be controlled, you know, essentially from anywhere. Whereas the robots that we're using in spine surgery and in neurosurgery, they require the surgeon to be actually performing the majority of the tasks in the operating room and just using that robot as an adjunct. So the Da Vinci is a little bit different in terms of how it's utilized in that technology. Well, it sounds like in neurosurgery and spine in particular, the use of the robotics is more of an extension of the surgeon versus a separation of the surgeon from being more hands-on and being more involved. Is that, is that more of an accurate way to think about it? Yes, that's exactly how I would describe it. You know, the, the robot is really is a tool that we're using. And what it's primarily doing at this stage is just constraining us to a single trajectory or keeping things perfectly in line uh, with where we want them to end up. And so you can imagine it like when you're, you're a child and you, you go bowling and they put the bumpers in the, in the gutters at the bowling alley and it keeps your bowling ball going straight down the lane. The robot essentially does the same thing. It, it provides a trajectory directly into the bone where we want to place that hardware and you just pass the instruments through. So just like the child, you're still rolling the bowling ball or placing that screw. That robot provides just a very narrow tunnel for that to go through and ensure that it ends up exactly in the right place. Okay, that's a great analogy. Thanks for sharing that. I think we've covered a lot today with regards to our topic. Chris, I know you're always on the cutting edge of things. Are there any other uh, exciting innovations in the field of spine surgery that you think the listeners should be aware of? I think there's a lot going on in spine surgery that's exciting. And I, I think what we're seeing now is the combination of various technologies. You know, the initial robotics platform did not have a real-time navigation or real-time instrument tracking view built into it. Those have now been merged together into, into these hybrid systems. The next stage is really looking at augmented reality, essentially using headsets or heads-up displays that really provides a surgeon with x-ray vision so that the surgeon can walk over and look at the patient and be able to see through their skin, essentially, at their, at their bones and their anatomy. That's just pushing us further and further to more and more minimally invasive procedures with shorter operations, faster recoveries, and better outcomes. I think another area that's really interesting is that as these robots become more and more advanced, we're going to start using them for additional phases of the operation. For example, you can imagine that we could define areas of the body that we did not want an instrument to go into, for example, say an area where the, the spinal nerves or the spinal canal, spinal cord are, but we want to be able to remove the bone safely from around that area. If we can give those boundaries to a robot and use our instruments through that robotic arm, that arm would stop us from, from violating those boundaries. 
and would allow us to mark off uh, the areas that were safe to work in and protect us from going into the areas that we don't want to be. So I think there's a lot of excitement in these areas coming up in the next several years. A lot of exciting development in terms of the technology and, and all of the, the different functions that we're going to be able to utilize it for. I think the take-home point here is with these types of technologies, we're striving towards increased safety, improved accuracy, kind of less morbidity associated with surgery or less bleeding, less time in the hospital. And that's really where the trend is moving towards. So if you're listening to this, Chris is on, he's on the tip of the spear with this. It's been a real privilege getting to talk with him today about the topic. Those that listen to the podcast know I, I always like to sprinkle in a little bit of information on health and wellness. And I think it's important to share with our listeners some of the tips and tricks that the physicians in our practice and, and the people I interview use. What are kind of your favorite health routines, apps, tools, things that you use to kind of stay fit, mentally sharp, and, and just promote wellness in your life? Anything you want to share with our listeners today? I think you caught me at a perfect time for this question because I, I you know, just before the quarantine started, I had just built a, a little area in my house uh, as a gym because I had been felt myself just getting so out of shape. I had lived before I came here to Charlotte. I'd been living out in Park City. Utah. And in my time out there, I was so active. I was backcountry skiing and mountain biking and hiking. And, and really, by the time I moved to Charlotte, I, I felt like I was in probably the best shape I had been in in a long time. And then over the last four or so years here, being uh, busy building a practice, I, I really felt like I had fallen way out of shape. And so over the last several months, being uh, on lockdown at home, I've taken up rowing and lost 30 over 30 pounds in the last three months. And so for me, I found that to be just such a high impact, short duration activity. You know, I can row 20 or 25 minutes and really get in a, a very strenuous workout. And it's worked wonders for me. I mean, I've, I've lost a lot of weight. I feel great. And, and overall, it just it allows me to function at a lot higher level, I feel like. And so for me, access is the most critical thing. I have such limited time. And if I have to get to a gym and, and all of those things, I just wouldn't be able to do it particularly now when most of the gyms are closed, it would have been, it would have been impossible for me to be doing something to maintain uh, that level of activity. And so having it available at home and able to do that anytime I, I find an extra 20 or 25 minutes has been a huge advantage and, and has allowed me to stick with it. Yeah, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I, I asked this question not because I'm searching for the holy grail of health and fitness, but I really want people listening to understand it doesn't quite matter as much what you do. It just matters that you're doing something. And, you know, rowing in particular, it's, it's a very, like Chris said, it's a very intense exercise. You get significant cardiovascular return, a lot of strength training in the upper body. I, I do think if you like to row, you have to be a little cautious with your posture on the rowing machine. If you have low back issues, you want to maintain a good neutral spine and perhaps even have a trainer who goes over the technique with you and how to do it safely. But it is a terrific low-impact aerobic exercise that is uh, something that'll definitely help you lose weight if that's something you're looking at. So I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've all been under a lot of stress over the last several months, and having that outlet for you is very necessary. So thanks for sharing that with the listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been fantastic. And, and I completely echo your, your comments about posture and form. It's better to just have a nice regular rate and just go slow and, and go for form than, than really trying to go as fast as possible. But 
it's incredible how quickly, once you start doing something like that regularly, how your body really grows into that. And you really build up your endurance and your strength through doing those types of exercises. Fabulous. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your time today. And actually, I anticipate having you back on down the road when newer things are evolving. I know the listeners enjoyed the information today, and I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.